dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see headlights on both ends of my day this country Hey, welcome folks to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined as always by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey, Kayleen. Hi, Jenny. Alrighty, so right off the bat, everything still hurts from the dental surgery, Kayleen. (laughs) And you actually went back to the dentist? (laughs) Yeah, so... uh, Hey kids, here's an idea. Don't do what Aunt Jenny did, okay? Um, Get your wisdom teeth out when you're in your teens and your early 20s. Don't wait till you're 42 uh, because it's much harder when you're 42 to get your wisdom teeth out. And uh, I had a complication not to get people too gross, but I have a dry socket. Uh, Google it. It's incredibly painful. (laughs) I'm I'm on some really good pain meds right now, Kayleen. (laughs) You'll notice that we have Kayleen doing more of the talking this week. Right, Kayleen? Yeah, Jenny sounded like she had a mouthful of marbles in our meeting earlier this week, so. Yeah, so (laughs) I'm just here to tell you clove oil is great, and uh, when you do have a dry socket, do not think that you can eat french fries, because fry in the hole is not something that you want to scream in a restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of reaction did you get from your neighbors in the restaurant? Well, the neighbors weren't really around because we were social distanced, obviously, but uh, uh, the fella about fell off his chair laughing. So (laughs) I provide a lot of entertainment no matter where I go, Kayleen. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Hey, speaking of entertaining, Kansas finally had our primary. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> Did you go vote? Yeah I, think, yeah, I went and voted in person. And after the two dozen text messages I got for some reason in the last two days before the election, I'd had enough. And I got 14 mail cards from different candidates and didn't vote for any of those. <laughs> so, little known fact when you, um, when you actually sign up to vote, when you register to vote and you give them all your information, you have the option to give them your phone number. Most everybody does. And when you do that, you actually do give consent to the parties for using that information that is provided to them by the county election people, the county election board. So they are, they are, un, um, they're exempt from the do not call list. Isn't that fun? Yay team. Yeah, that's great. I wish I could mute them like I can on my Zoom calls and my different webinars that I watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never seen, um, I mean, in, in all my years of, of watching elections, I've never quite seen a party go nuclear as big and as bad as the Kansas Republican Party did in the primaries. And by going nuclear, I mean, they just pulled out all the stops against each other 
um, in the primary slot. Yeah, it got, it got kind of ugly there. And my husband watches the news in the morning and every commercial on there is was an election commercial. And my kids got to where they knew the candidates' names. <laughs> and why are they being mean, Dad? <laughs> well, and, you know, typically you'll see, you'll see that dirty kind of politics at the in the general election but never you know rarely in the primaries because in the primaries you know you still you still kind of want to make sure that whoever wins has the backing of the full party and you can actually coalesce behind it right you know but after you've told somebody that one guy hires illegal aliens supposedly the other guy supposedly ran over his neighbor and another guy supposedly has you know ties to white supremacy that's all in the primary election we had for one race. What are they going to do when it comes down to the big election? (laughs) You pretty much just gave the opposing party their entire, you know, script for the next month or, you know, however many days it is to the the general election for their content. So I just, I, I watched that and I just went, I, wow, just wow. Bravo, fellas, for, you know, not just, uh, not just finding the mud, but, you know, full, full on slinging the mud. So, um, yeah, I, I actually did not vote in person. I voted by mail. I requested an absentee ballot. Yeah, we got those in the mail and I opened it and promptly set it aside and got buried in my pile and just didn't do anything with it. It's, still sitting here next to my desk. <laughs> well, but you know what? I I wanted to have that option because I knew I would get busy on the day of election and I want to have my voice be heard. So, what I do what I do think is funny is Kansas has their primaries in August, which is ridiculous. By this time, the national races have been sorted out by the every, every other state in the union. You know, you have no option to select anybody in a primary this late in the season. Um, so you pretty much give over your party's choice for president or your party's choice for vice president, et cetera, to the states that go ahead of you. It's the most useless primary on the planet. <laughs> I really want to say it. It really is. By this time, you know, Biden was already selected. Trump's already selected. You know, in 2016, Trump was already selected by the time Kansas got to have their say. So the Republican Party said, you know, oh, yeah, sure. That's our Republican nomination instead of there are other candidates that we would like to have presented. So, um, like I said, it's the most useless primary on the planet. (laughs) But then again, I'm not a a government person. So switching over from that uh, to something more interesting. I've been watching the Kansas Governor's um, Ag Growth Summit. They've been doing their, the Ag Growth Summit usually is a two-day event in person in Manhattan. You know, we have a lot of meetings. We have a lot of, of um, breakout sessions on different topics of interest to agriculture throughout the state, such as beef or wheat, soybeans, sorghum, um, animal and pet food. Uh, you know, the pet food industry is large in Kansas, animal health, a host of others. And uh, it's been kind of interesting to catch their their breakout sessions, Kayleen, just to keep up to date on to what the opportunities and the challenges are for our ag industry in the state. So I listened to Beef yesterday, 
And the, uh, the folks at Cattlefax made a very strong, convincing argument that we are going to have to raise our packing capacity if Kansas is still going to be a leader in the beef industry. And, and they're right. You know, um, what they were saying is we have increased our capacity on the feeder end, but we haven't increased our shackle space on the processing end. And you, you saw that firsthand with your, your son's pigs for 4-H that we talked about last week's episode. But, um, you know, they're talking about there actually might be room for more cooperative efforts. There actually might be more room for um, smaller and mid-sized um, guys to get together and, and have a smaller mid-sized packing plant. But here's the catch. Nobody wants it in their backyard. You know, you and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, a couple of years ago, we had an opportunity to bring in a poultry packing plant to the Kansas City area. And that got shot down so quick, so fast, and so in a hurry, it, it was a blink and it was gone. And that, that yeah. opportunity could have brought a lot of jobs to that area, but nobody wants it in their backyard. So um, I think if we're going to do this, it's probably going to happen in Western Kansas where we have a larger amount of space and we have fewer people to complain about what comes into their backyard. You know, maybe we'll have an opportunity to have more jobs come to the area and more jobs bring more families, which bring more children to the school districts, which bring larger schools and more opportunities for everybody. Just one thing to think about. Yeah. You know, you guys raise cattle. What would that do for you? Well, we primarily sell them after they've been weaned and then they go, somebody takes them on. But I mean, somebody... They have to have a place to go. I mean, why raise them if they're not going to be utilized? And they've got to go, got to go somewhere. So, I mean, I'm not opposed to to another pack and plant. Um, and I pay taxes like everybody else. And I would like to have, you know, bigger and better things in my community. And those those pack and plants contribute a lot to a community as far as the tax base and all that sort of stuff goes. You know, there might be opportunities for the packers themselves that are already established to, to expand their already open operations. Somebody posed the question, you know, in 2013, they idled several plants because of the drought and the fact that, you know, we just didn't have, um, they, they, or in 2008 or so, they started idling some plants um, because there just wasn't enough cattle coming through. And somebody asked, well, can you restart those plants? Problem is, is those plants, all of the equipment was stripped out of there and sold something else or utilized in some other place. It's old equipment by this time, you know, we're a decade out. So uh, whatever happens, it's going to have to probably end up being a, a from the ground up buildup. So it's going to take a lot. It's going to take some, some, the right local governments and the right people in the local governments to push things forward, to be supportive of it. Um, you know, the, the hundred pound elephant in the room is, you know, who's going to work at these places. And we know that we have a large immigrant population in Western Kansas and frankly, you know, having a legal path to immigration to citizenship is going to be key for, for these areas. If we're going to continue to have growth in agriculture, you've got to have people that, that will work. And 
you know, immigrants will work in our, in our agricultural entities. Uh, whatever that is shaping up like, it seems like that conversation gets taken over by coastal um, lawmakers instead of the guys in the middle of the country that are really, really affected by the situation. So um, here's a fun topic. Uh, I also listened to the, the wheat seminar this morning, Kayleen. And here's what I love is when we have, you know, Kansas is the wheat state. And we constantly have people that are thinking outside of the box as far as bringing the message of wheat to the masses. And uh, the Kansas wheat group, during the, during the pandemic, they were trying to figure out a way to bring the influencers of, of um, social media. So the Instagram, um, social media influencers, the bloggers, the food bloggers, Typically, they would bring them out to Kansas during harvest and show them around. Well, can't do that in, the, in a pandemic. And so they decided to partner up with some um, smaller influencers on Instagram and share wheat crates. It was a, a, a boxed service where they had two different kinds of boxes. One was um, filled with local flour and recipe ideas. Um, for baking, and then one was filled with flour and ideas for crafting using wheat. And they had such a huge response that it brought more attention to the Eat Wheat website. Um, and they saw that not only was demand during the curve up for uh, flour and for information about baking and home baking, but it's continued to stay that way. Uh, one of the folks from Farmer Direct Foods also spoke, Kayleen, and he mentioned that typically during the months of July and August, a flour mill like theirs would be prepping for flour for the fall baking season. Think about pies and cookies and all of the stuff that we get ready for for Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and all the holidays, right? Well, they're spending their July and August fulfilling orders from May and April and, and trying to, to catch up with the demand that was happening in the middle of the curve. And they're going to see higher demand during the fall baking because people remembered what it was like to bake at home and they like it. So there's some good news for some wheat demand out there, especially good news for Kansas wheat growers. Did no. you get into the baking curve? No. <laughs> the 4-H baking is as far as we got. And I haven't baked anything besides homemade pizza crust for a couple of months. <laughs> you know sourdough for you? No, I don't like sourdough. You know what? I got to say, I wanted to try my hand at sourdough and everybody says it's so easy. Um, I got intimidated and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Never wheat. I should be able to do this, right? Yeah, um, yeah I just, I, I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, we still have wheat on our, or bread on our shelves, so I didn't have a problem there. But um, I did do a lot more baking of, um, of banana bread and a few more muffins here and there. And I can definitely tell that I did not exercise those off. So, <laughs> well, my husband doesn't eat very much bread, so I don't really expend that much energy on it so and the boys would 
eat it all day long and they don't need it either. So. <laughs> My dad always, always, every meal we had to have sliced bread and butter on the table. You know, it was just one of those things. And, and I always, you know, I always thought it was because we were wheat farmers and, and we always had whole wheat bread. We never had white bread, never wonder bread. I was in college before I had wonder bread for the first time. <laughs> and it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> if you were raised on whole wheat, you just don't like that white stuff. It just, ugh. Well, we had, we had white bread all the time. There used to be a rainbow bakery store here in town that they would get all the discounted stuff, the day old stuff. And you'd go in there and mom would fill up bags full of stuff at the rainbow store and put it in the freezer. And we, we ate a lot of sandwiches growing up. It's probably why I don't eat very many now. You know, freezer bread, people wonder about us, but I usually have a loaf of bread in my freezer. Just yeah, I do too. No, you take it out, you take the twist tie off, take the twist tie off, and you put it in the microwave, just the loaf, straight out of the freezer in the microwave for about 10 seconds or so. It'll thaw it just enough that you can peel off a slice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you if you want just one slice and you can get it peeled off at, you know, five seconds or something in the microwave and it'll be unthawed because my boys don't like toasted <laughs> frozen bread. I'm kind of picky about it, but... My microwave took crap, so yeah, we don't have that luxury right now. <laughs> Seriously, they're on sale at Walmart. Go get you one. Well, mine is one that's above the stove, and it's got the vent and everything, and it's oh. slides in there. And I had, of course, the dishwasher crapped out at the same time, so I had somebody come out and look at the dishwasher, and he looked at the microwave, and he's like, "Well, that's a twelve-year-old microwave. That's usually about their lifespan." And I'm like, oh, nice, because it came with the house. <laughs> and he's like, by the time you get the part and the labor to install it, it's probably about half of the cost of a new one. So I guess we should be shopping for a new one. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, none of my major appliances have, have uh, died on me just yet, but I did have to go get new glasses, Kayleen. So you'll notice new glasses. Ooh, ah. Um, let me tell you, picking out glasses when you're wearing a mask in the Walmart um, eyeglass place is just very odd. <laughs> yeah, just I did very that odd. back in April and it was, it was weird, especially when the boys both needed glasses and of course they have to touch everything anyway. And the gal was like, don't touch any of them on the wall. I'll get them down for you. Yeah. So. Oh, well, other than that, how you doing? I'm here. <laughs> we talked a lot about my tooth but um everybody's good out your direction getting ready for school yep and they sent out some information today about the safety procedures and health procedures they're going to be doing at school I've been reminding my children that they're probably going to have to wear a mask <laughs> are you so. starting to practice with them you know as far as wearing it for a half hour at a time and little bit by little bit expanding that it's kind of like training a dog <laughs> <laughs> no we haven't got that far yet and chance went with me to town the other day and he wanted to go to the post office usually I leave him inside when I leave him in the car when I go inside and he wanted to go in so he put on the mask that I had in the car which is probably not the right protocol because I reuse them whatever <laughs> You know, at this point, I think if it's been sitting in a hot car in Kansas, 
it's pretty much re-sterilized. <laughs> Don't take our advice. We are not medical professionals. <laughs> Don't come at me. <laughs> well, my my thought is order some really cool masks online that they'll want to wear. You know, whether it's a superhero, whether it's, you know, Buzz and Woody or something like that, buy something that they will enjoy wearing that they feel like they're a superhero in that they, you know, can connect to. Cause the minute I got some cool masks, I felt a little bit better about wearing them out in public. I, it was a mental thing for me, yeah. you know, um, whether it was the ones that have the mustaches on them or the ones that have the black cows <laughs> or, or just the red bandana looking ones. I, I feel better because I'm different and unique when I wear my mask. So <laughs> <laughs> plus and I don't wear one so whatever <laughs> <laughs> oh the only time I wear them is if I'm going into the store honestly if I'm going into a place where I don't have the chance to be uh distance from people or we're kind of you know I know it's going to be a crowded situ- situation I'll just put it on plus Walmart now has the requirement that you have to have them on before you go inside and uh, that's a fun yeah. thing my so. husband <laughs> He tried to go in there the first day they had the mask requirement and the lady was at the door and said, sir, where's your mask at? And he's like, I don't have one. And she's like, we well, have to have one to go in. So he just turned around and left and went to Dylan's. So. You know, honestly, I, I get it. It's, it's, I feel bad that they have to be policemen of it. You know, that corporate has made them into police officers of a, of a policy kind of thing, but is what it is so yeah anyway well i hope you guys are are all doing um good out that direction and uh wherever you're at i know people are making decisions about going to school and not going to school or schooling at home and and all of those things and good luck and do what works for you and your family and and um you know we'll we'll be here plugging away writing stories right kayleen as best we can (laughs) But if you guys have uh, something on your minds, drop us a line, right? Yeah, drop us a line at hbjtalk at hbj.com and let us know or call us at 1-800-452-7171. And as always, do us a favor and head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. This week's episode will bring you the stories you might have missed in the August 3rd print edition. We'll have our report from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondent, Janelle Schimper. And I'll bring you the latest in the gray markets and we'll have some final thoughts. Alta Seeds brings you this week's episode. Alta debuted its iGrow Sorghum line July 8th in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day online. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to catch up on the webinar recording at www.hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Well, hey folks, hopefully you don't have as big of a pain in the tooth as I do, but if you do, pull up some clove oil and uh, perhaps a painkiller and ride with us here on HPJ Talk.
This week's cover story is by field editor Lacey Newland. Dairy cows could lead the way to COVID-19 herd immunity. A cow might just help change the direction of work being done in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Herd immunity has been thrown around in many conversations, and one biopharmaceutical company in South Dakota has brought a therapeutic candidate called SAB-185 to the frontiers of the coronavirus fight via dairy cows. SAB Biotherapeutics is using a proprietary technology to produce fully human polyclonal antibodies from cows that have shown in recent in vitro data that four to 12 times more potent than convalescent plasma at neutralizing the SARS, whatever, COV2, the virus that causes COVID-19. Quote, what we have done is genetically engineer these cattle so that they have parts of a human immune system. So we've essentially turned off the bovine genes for producing bovine, bovine antibodies, and we've inserted what is called a human artificial chromosome. And quote, said Eddie Sullivan of SAB Biotherapeutics. He's the president and CEO. When they're exposed to a pathogen, rather than producing bovine antibodies, the cows produce fully human antibodies that are essentially identical to the human antibodies you and I produce when we get exposed to pathogens. So this is really cool, Kayleen. Basically, we're using the cattle herd, the specially designed cattle herd, as test subjects for potential treatments of, um, and, and uh, vaccines, essentially, right? I mean, this is a... Is this a, a treatment? No, polyclonal antibodies versus convalescent plasma. So this is a treatment, not a vaccine. And we've also we've already seen the convalescent plasma. So that's people that have already recovered from COVID-19. They donate plasma and that plasma is donated and used to people that are suffering from it. And that plasma contains the antibodies from that person that fought COVID off. And when you put those into that, that other person's body that's suffering it currently, those antibodies can fight the infection that's there, or, that's there already. So this is a way that we can maybe ramp up that production, I guess. And uh, it's really great that dairy cows are, are leading the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool technology they've been able to take advantage of. And I, I seen somewhere there was a news story that a lot of that convalescent plasma has already been used and they're running low on the supply. One of the news stories I saw. So if you're listening to us out there and you have survived COVID-19 or you know of somebody who has, um, first off, wow, congratulations and, and um, you know, best wishes there. But, you know, you might also consider uh, helping the researchers find an answer to COVID-19 and that might actually be in your plasma. And so it's going to take all of us doing the best that we can to, to fight this monster. And um, that's, that's incredible. I, I just think back of all the things that we have from animals today. You know, we, we have insulin that came from, from pigs, if I remember right. We have so many different medical um, therapeutics that come from the agricultural industry it's not just the meat that you see in the meat case. Um, there's a lot that, that we have that traces it all back to livestock, right, Kayleen? Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of products out there that the livestock contribute to. Yep. Well, hey, um, Lacey also had a story inside. USDA's packer analysis aims to prevent future market shifts. And uh, this was interesting. Uh, she 
we had uh, some results from the investigation launch, launched by the USDA on the disparity between box beef prices and fed cattle prices. Um, that happened, that started off August of 2019. And they, um, the three-part report, the first analysis of it was released July 22nd. And uh, U.S. Representative Frank Lucas, an Oklahoma Republican, major supporter of the investigation, said the initial target of this deep market examination was the wild price swings that first plagued cattlemen after the Holcomb, Kansas packing plant fire in August 2019. And back then, that skyrocketed the price of processed beef and dramatically decreased the value of live cattle that were going into the plants. So Lucas said once the COVID-19 pandemic hit, that caused what more one-sided seesawing in the price consumers were paying for meat and a near collapse in the value of live cattle going to market. This led the USDA to expand their analysis or their investigation to include the pandemic as well. So what Lucas said is, quote, what we've seen in the markets in the aftermath of Holcomb and COVID-19 has caused tremendous financial hardship on my producers for a short period of time, drastically raised the cost of eating and living for folks on the other end. And uh, Lucas said he wants to make sure that both producers and consumers are being treated equal, equitably and the laws are being followed. I think we're going to see a lot more on that investigation and the, and the fallout from that investigation as we go forward, um, you know, there was no doubt that there were some some problems and and things going on, and and live cattle producers had a lot to complain about. Yeah, they sure did. On the opinions and editorials page, editor Dave Bergmar has a column this week. Virtual format for U events adds value. A letter to the editor comes from Brandy Miller, president and CEO of the Kansas Cooperative Council in Hutchinson, Kansas and Gerald Cameron, the chairman, CEO, and general manager of Pride Ag Resources here in Dodge City. Their letter was titled, Kansas Farmers Need Support, Not New Tax. Another letter to the editor comes from Nancy Johnner, state executive director of the USDA Farm Service Agency in Nebraska, titled, Was Your Operation Impacted by the Coronavirus Pandemic? You know, Dave's right. We are uh, switching over to a lot of uh, virtual events for uh, virtual format for our U events. Uh, next week, Kayleen, we forgot to talk about, uh, we've got our first ever virtual sorghum and wheat U August 11th and 12th. And you can sign up for that free registration to watch two days worth of seminars from some really great speakers. Uh, you can do that online at hpj.com slash S-U-W-U, and uh, hope to see you there. I, I think we're going to have a, a good lineup and a good turnout. Already over 120 people have responded and said they want to um, they want to learn online that way. So this may be the, the new era of disseminating information, Kayleen. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy to sit at your own computer and listen to somebody talk as opposed to driving an hour to a meeting and which right now it'd probably be nice to get out and drive to a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you know, we catch so many people that um, otherwise couldn't attend uh, yeah. for one reason or another, whether it's that hour long drive, whether it's time off from their, their town jobs, whether it is uh, child care or elderly care or just duties on the farm itself. And so um, I'm really excited that we are, branching out, and we are expanding our audiences for our educational events. Going on, David Murray has a story inside this week's issue, China makes second largest ever corn buy. 
Amid stepped up buys of U.S. grains, China made its second biggest ever single buy of U.S. corn. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture reported July 10th that purchase was 1.365 million tons, uh, the biggest single daily sale since 1994. About 765,000 tons of the corn purchase is for delivery this year. The rest is for the 2021 season. The purchase followed another large Chinese corn buy a few weeks previously. China also bought 190,000 tons of hard red spring wheat and 130,000 tons of hard red winter wheat for delivery next season. Um, much of that, by the way, Kayleen, of that hard red winter wheat, that's going to be coming from Kansas hard red winter growers. So we're, we're pretty ecstatic about that. Um, all this despite a sharp escalation in tensions between the U.S. and China over a variety of issues over the spread of coronavirus, Chinese spying and technology theft, and its crackdown on Hong Kong. China insists it is fulfilling its obligations under phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal. As part of that deal, China promised to increase its buys of U.S. agricultural commodities to $36.5 billion or 50% increase from the $24 billion it spent in 2017. We also have a livestock feature from Lacey Newland headlined, Preserving Hay Profit Starts with Storage. There's not a sadder sight than a moldy, ruined round bale, especially after all the work that goes into growing the forage, baling it, and stacking that end product. Kevin Schinners, professor of biological systems engineering at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, said hay growers can cut their hay storage losses with a few simple steps. When it comes to storage losses, it's really all about the precipitation on the bales when stored outdoors, Schinner said. We know that the bales will get rained on, but what we want to do is try to make sure the rain will get shed off the bales, the water will drain away from them, and the bales will dry quickly. When hay bales get over 22 to 23% in moisture, biological activity in the bales starts to cause problems, and spoilage takes place and negatively affects the quantity of dry matter as well as the quality of the hay, he said. And there's a round bale that's a perfect example of that sitting out in my yard that my husband opened up to feed the horses and fed one horse for about two days. And it's still sitting out there and it's gotten rained on multiple times. So, <laughs> you know, I tell you what, I grew up putting up hay, uh, watching my dad and my brother put up hay and storing it. You know, we started off with round or we actually started off with large haystacks, round haystacks, which is a technology that that got bypassed by large round balers in the 80s. Um, we moved to round balers and then we moved to large square balers. And uh, the number one thing that would drive my dad crazy is if we didn't get stuff properly tarped, if we didn't get things properly stacked, um, because you do a lot of labor intense, you know, it's, it's labor intense to get that hay in that package and wasting it just feels like you're wasting, you know, leftovers in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember one of the, the worst um, punishments I ever got as a child was when we had the big haystacks in the yard and we turned it into a playground. And yeah, that was not a very good reaction from my dad, which is understandable. <laughs> my dad would, uh, he would stack the haystacks and um, my brother and sister, when they were little, they and their friends, you know, on sleepovers, they would jump from stack to stack to stack. One time, Joni got caught in between the two stacks, <laughs> and she got stuck. <laughs> and uh, when Dad was called, he was not happy. Yeah, we have a picture of my older sister that we were running on top of the round bales, and she got stuck. And 
all of us kids are standing there laughing as she's sitting there wailing as dad is getting in there out. Mom had the foresight to take a picture of it. So, <laughs> Well, usually you want to document every time you do that. Yeah. And Jenny also had a Common Ground column this week, a time to work and a time to rest. I haven't read your column yet, so tell me a little bit about it and what inspired your column this week. So, you know, when I was a kid, um, there wasn't a lot of extra money. You know, there, if you're a farm kid that grew up in the 80s and the 90s, you know what I'm talking about. There just wasn't a lot of extra money. But my dad made sure that we had some sort of opportunity to get away from the farm and to rest. Now, we weren't lake people. Um, dad wasn't a fisherman. Dad wasn't a, a hunter. He didn't have hobbies. Uh, he, his hobby was his work. He, he loved his cattle. He loved what he did as a farmer. And, and that brought him joy. But even he needed to have some time to get away from the farm. And, and today you see a lot of people that talk about farmer stress and farmer depression, um, farmer suicides. And this may not be the answer to it, but one of the answers is we need to give ourselves permission to have time to rest. It is not being lazy. It is not being a spendthrift. It is not being, um, you know, somebody that's, you know, running away from your responsibilities. What it is, is you need to give your body and your mind time away from the work that you're doing. I think even now in this time where we're seeing a lot of people working from their home environments, the amount of stress that we're under is huge because we don't have that time in the office. We don't have that drive home to let us decompress. We don't, we don't have a separation between our, our home and our office because our home is now our office. <laughs> and when I started, you know, uh, this actually came from uh, a conversation on Twitter where somebody had posted some pictures of a vacation that they took with their, their family right after wheat harvest. And the typical piling on of farmers of must be nice. Uh, gee, I wish I could afford that. Gee, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Stop shaming people for taking time to have time with their families. And you know what? Look in your own house and start taking time to be with your own family. Because if you're working too much, it's not stress. It's it's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for the family, and it's not the answer. It's not the only answer, but it's part of the equation. You have to give your your mind and your body time to regroup from the the duties of the day. So whether that's a week going to Yellowstone or it's a day just puttering around town and going and seeing, um, you know what's new in the county next door do something that gets you off the farm and give yourself time to rest. There's a reason why it's there in the Bible. <laughs> you have time to work and a time to rest. <laughs> so that's the shortened shortened and long of it for common ground this week, Kayleen. Well, hey folks, you can read more on the variety of ag issues that are facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal every week in your mailbox, or you can look for it online anytime at hpj.com. And if you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal's Cattle U has moved to a virtual event during the week of September 7th to 11th. Don't miss your chance to hear from the top names in the cattle industry and learn how you can bring more value to your herd. 
Sessions will target all segments of the cattle business, from the cow-calf producer to the feedlot manager. For registration details, visit cattleu.net. And now it's time for an update from the field with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondents, brought to you by the Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Underfirth Manufacturing, AgriProceed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF. This is Kayleen Scott here for HPJ Talk with Janelle Skimper. She's one of our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondents. Welcome, Janelle. Hey, thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Uh, where are you guys cutting at now? Well, we just got moved over here by Pierre, South Dakota. We were up in Fort Benton, Montana. We cut winter wheat there. Got the winter wheat cut and got moved over here to South Dakota. We're going to start on spring wheat, I think, tomorrow. We just took a sample today. It was a little bit wet, so hopefully it'll go tomorrow. Okay. Well, tell our listeners what the difference between winter wheat and spring wheat is it just the time of year it's planted, or? Is yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different. Uh, so winter wheat is planted in the fall and then cut the following summer. Spring wheat is planted in the spring and then cut in the summer. So a little bit of difference. Okay. You said the wheat has, was a little wet when you tested it. What is the wheat surrounding where you guys are at? What does it look like? Does it look good in the field? or? Yes, it looks outstanding. I would say just a little bit that I cut today was... 50s and 60s is what it was showing mm-hmm. on the yield monitor. Um, the moisture was, they wanted under 14.5, so it'll probably go tomorrow. Okay. But, yeah, the, the crops look outstanding here, and they just had one to two inches of rain Tuesday night, and so the fall crops look outstanding. The soybeans and corn look like pivot irrigation, and, and there's no irrigation. It's just <laughs> raining, so it looks phenomenal around here. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So how long do you guys expect to be in the area that you're at right now? Um, I'll probably be in South Dakota for a week, maybe two, and then we will get moved up to North Dakota, which is my favorite on the harvest run. <laughs> it's just good land up there, good people, and, and typically really good crops. So I love it up there. I look forward to that every year. Yeah. So what, after North Dakota, where, where are you headed? So after North Dakota, that's it for for wheat. So we will head home after that. That's typically around September 15th. We'll head back home and start on soybeans and corn. Okay. And then we'll we'll work at that till around Thanksgiving time. So that's kind of a long time to be in the combine from. It's, it's it's a long time. You know, we started May 25th, and we'll probably finish around November 25th. So it's a full seven months out of the year i'm i'm around the combine yeah your combine sure get a a workout <laughs> a workout yeah <laughs> you get your money's worth out of them that's my dad yeah say. yeah we, we definitely try <laughs> <laughs> so how's the crew doing the crew's good we just finished up at montana um on winter wheat 
and we did good. The the winter wheat up there was over 70 bushels. And my last blog, I just wrote about it. It's called, I, I titled it The Golden Triangle. Mm-hmm. And you know, we had a full crew, and, and we got all the winter wheat cut. We left six combines there. They're going to they're gonna do some spring wheat. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's ready yet, but it, it will be here shortly. Yeah. So have you guys had any adventures while you've been out on the road here recently? None, none. I've been cutting nearly every day, almost every day, we've, unless we're traveling. Yeah, unless you're traveling. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but other than that, we've we've been in the field, so. Well, what's it like driving up and down the highways in the summertime with, you know, I, it's probably less traffic this year, but is it is it still an adventure to drag a combine down the highway? It is, and it's crazy how much traffic there is with, with the COVID-19 going on. Uh, when we moved from western Nebraska up to Montana, we had so much traffic in South Dakota. So, like, we went north of Shadron, Nebraska, up through the western part of South Dakota, like up through Rapid City and that way up to Montana. Mm-hmm. And there was so much traffic. It was unreal. It's like, where are all these people going? <laughs> must be but yeah. yeah, and then when you have a wide load, you know, it's just, it's... It's stressful when you got that much traffic. All right. Well, I hope you guys have a great rest of your week, and you will be on the Facebook Live tomorrow. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. Hopefully, we'll be in the field, and I can I can show a little bit of combine action in the in the Facebook Live. That is, if I'm in the field. If not, I'll do something from from town. So yeah. Well, that sounds good. Everybody will have to get on there and talk to Janelle this week and get your questions in early and have something for her to answer. That sounds good to me. (laughs) And if you want to catch up with Janelle's blog post, you can find those at www.allaboardharvest.com. Thanks, Janelle. Thank you. Thanks for that update. And remember, if you want to catch up with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews, visit their blog at allaboardharvest.com and look for their posts in the pages of High Plains Journal each week. All Aboard Harvest is brought to you by Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unverfirth Manufacturing, AgriProceed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF, who remind you that we're all in this together. I'm Martin Barbary. I'm the Risk Management Agency Administrator here at the United States Department of Agriculture. I've been here a little over two years in this role of, of administering the insurance program for producers across the country. I am a farmer, having spent time on the National Corn Growers Board and, and uh, was a full-time farmer until I showed up here. So that, that's kind of where I come from. Okay. Now tell me a little bit what's going on with your section of the USDA and why we're talking today with the COVID pandemic um you know um we've had a lot of things going on a lot of flexibilities me being a farmer myself i understand how it just uh, affects farmers uh you know i've farmed all my life uh, spent some time with the national corn Grower association and, and other organizations but was a full-time farmer till i took this position so you know bring that that perspective into here and understand how it's important that we be flexible as we can we've uh we've allowed uh virtual signatures on forms, which we've always required a wet signature before. Uh, we've allowed uh, additional time for, for production reporting, uh, additional times for producers to get their records, crop records reporting uh, evened up with their FSA 578. So just a lot of things we've done. Uh, we've Earlier policies we did defer interest on, and again, that's what we're doing today for uh, 
policies that have a uh, premium billing date between August 1st of 2020 and September 30th of 2020 will be uh, we're giving producers an additional 60 days to pay those premiums and administrative fees. Uh, so essentially, when they would have to pay them on for the August 15th billing date, which is the big one, uh, they normally would have to pay that by August, October 1st. Our interest would start to accrue this year. That that won't happen until December 1st. They will have until then to pay the, the premium and not have any interest added to that uh, going forward. Uh, but one thing to note when we do that, um, producers who do not get that paid by December 1st will have interest going back to the original date when interest would have accrued. So we're giving you an extra 60 days to, to pay it, but make sure you get it paid during that time frame. Also, we're allowing an additional 60 days for policyholders who have made written payment agreements with their with their insurance companies. Uh, we allow producers who maybe can't get their um, premium paid by the date that they would be considered terminated for the next year. We allow them to set up a written payment agreement with their companies. We're allowing them to another additional 60 days on when those payments would be due to still be considered timely and still be qualified for the insurance program. That's that's really what we're doing today, Kylene. It's just a, you know, basically we're deferring interest for two months. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like it could be helpful for those guys that are having trouble, you know, with financially right now and with, you know, all the, the things they have to deal with, with not being able to go in the office and sign something or find a something to, you know, get that accomplished online or however they have to do that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, that's, that's producers are, are cash crunched right now, and this will allow them at least, you know, those with fall crops to get in and do some fall harvesting and, and get some money coming in before they have to make that payment. Now, remind me, the RMA, what you guys do and how you guys do it. Which which programs you, know, you work through? Yeah, this is the risk management agency at USDA. We we administer the crop insurance program for producers across the country. We do that through what we call a public private partnership with the approved insurance providers. There are, are fifteen insurance companies that we contract with to deliver the program to to their quote our customers. We do that. They contract in with agents and, and adjusters to deliver the program and administer the program, do the, the claim indemnities and adjusting and those types of things. So that's kind of how the program works. Producers would should be working with an agent and to administer their policy and do the things they need to do. Okay. Why is it with through the private insurance agents? How, do you, how did that partnership come that, about? That's the way the program was set up originally. I think and, and you're probably past my knowledge, but <laughs> I think the program was, you know, originally it was done by, by private companies. The government did that. I, I think then there came a, you know, there, there was crop hail. I think that was the first thing, and, and kind of private companies did that. The government got involved, I think, back in the Dust Bowl, to be honest about it, with Tweet. And um, from then on, it just kind of grew into a, a program that there seemed to be an efficiency doing that and has grown from that. Okay. Now, why is it, do you think, important for a farmer or rancher to take advantage of the risk management agency and what they're offering? You know, we, we consider the risk management agency's policies to be the, the prime uh, risk management tool for producers. We want to make sure that those policies work for producers or available for producers and and give them the opportunity to, to work with their agents and, and set up a risk management program that when when Mother Nature or the markets go against them, they have something to fall back on to, to be able to stay in business for the next year. 
Okay, is there anything else that the farmers should know about these extended deadlines and the interest that you guys are offering to them? I, I would just say this, Kylene, uh, from our website at www.rma.usda.gov, there's a link to all the flexibilities we've done for the COVID-19 pandemic, and also uh, there's agent locators on there if you're looking for an agent. There's just a lot of information there about our policies, and that's that's really the, the place to go. And we, we tell producers that, you know, if you've got questions, talk to your agent one, and two, talk to your agent, and three, talk to your agent. So I think that's... You know, we feel like the agent's the best place for the producer to get the information they need. Yeah, I bet they, they know the most about it. Well, I don't have any more questions if, if you don't have any more else. That's it. All right. Sounds good. I appreciate talking to you today. Uh-huh. Yeah, thank you. Uh-huh. High Plains Journal is bringing Wheat Sorghum U to you virtually August 11th and 12th. Don't miss this one-day event with speakers from around the High Plains, bringing you the education and tools you need to boost your wheat and sorghum bottom lines. Registration is free. Don't delay. Save your seat today at hpj.com. Your grain market prices from Dodd City's Pride Egg Resources on July 28th. Corn was down at $3.30. Wheat was down at $4.07. Milo was down at $3.30, and soybeans were down at $7.98. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com slash signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. Be sure to watch for our Farm and Ranch Management Expansion Issue of High Plains Journal in your mailboxes August 10th with a story from Jennifer Thur. And look for additional content online anytime at www.hpj.com. Thanks again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta debuted its new iGrowth sorghum line July 8th in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's commercially available in the U.S. market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to check out the event recording at www.hpj.com slash sorghum frontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail. Dirt road in a gooseneck, saddle up with me. Dry land in God's country, crops far as I can see. Headlights on both ends.